Well, once again, good morning, everyone. We are glad that you're here with us. For the message this morning, we're going to be taking a look at that story from John chapter 21 that we heard just a, a, a little bit of read uh, earlier in the service. And so since we're going to look at the whole story together, I'd encourage you to grab a Bible. There's one in the pew in front of you if you didn't bring one with or if you don't have one on your phone. We're going to be in John chapter 21. And if you're using a pew Bible, uh, page 907 will get you uh, easily to John chapter 21. Uh, but before we get to that, would you bow your heads and would you pray together with me? Lord God, I pray that the words I'm about to speak this morning and the thoughts that we think as together we meditate on your word for us. Lord, I pray that that would all be truly acceptable in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer, who calls us to follow him. Amen. So uh, as I said at the beginning today, we're in this series that we are calling Follow, and it's all about being uh, true to these words that Jesus gave us. Because before he ascended into heaven, he gave his disciples a command, and that command applies to us as Jesus' disciples as well. He told us to go and to make other disciples. And he said there's two ways that that happens, two ways that disciples are made. First of all, by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In other words, Jesus is talking about bringing people into God's family and then he said, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. In other words, once we're a part of God's family, our desire, our goal should be to obey everything Jesus commanded. In other words, our goal should be to be more like Jesus. Now, I can tell you, a lot of churches take the first part of that seriously. They work hard to reach new people for Jesus. But honestly, once you become a part of the church, it doesn't really matter whether you grow more like Jesus or not. We're not like that here at Trinity. Uh, we take the second part of that just as seriously as the first part. We want to reach people with God's love, but we want to do what Jesus said, and that's we want to teach one another uh, to, to live the way Jesus commanded us to live, to be more like him in how we think and act and behave. And so that's why we're doing this series. We're looking at how did Jesus make disciples, because we want to be that kind of disciple-making church too. Now, we talk here at Trinity, in fact, we've been teaching this during this series about this discipleship path, where we're really just doing what Jesus did. First of all, Jesus attracted lots of people. We call them on-ramps here at Trinity, but Jesus attracted lots of people. His on-ramps were things like teaching the crowds and doing miracles and turning water into wine at weddings and all that kind of stuff. Jesus attracted attention with those miracles and with his teaching. But it didn't stop there. Remember, a few weeks ago, we saw Jesus challenged people to count the cost of following him, to discover what it meant to be a disciple, and then he encouraged them to make a commitment, to stand up and say, yes, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to be your disciple. And then we talked last week about how we then learn how to behave like him and live like him when we are in community with others. And that's why we encourage everybody to get in a small group. We say it all the time here at Trinity. You can't grow spiritually unless you're connected relationally, connected to the God that loves you and to other believers. And, uh, and so this morning, we want to talk about the fact that, that it doesn't end there. That, that if, you're, if you know Jesus, you're a baptized child of God, you're part of the family, you're in a small group of believers, and you are working together to try to be more like Jesus, Jesus says that's not enough. There's one more step. And we want to talk about that today. Uh, but, but first, before we get there, there are a couple of Greek words in the Bible. The New Testament is written in Greek. And there's a couple of Greek words in the Bible that describe us as the family of God. 
And as you can see, they look very similar to each other. Uh, there's just a few letters that are just a little different and pronounced just a little differently. Uh, and, but those little differences make a huge difference. You see, one of the words that's used to describe us as God's family is this word, those who have been saved is how it's translated. So in other words, it's talking about us being saved as if it's a done deal. It's, it's complete. It's, it's already taken care of. Jesus paid for our sins on the cross. He rose again to conquer sin and death for us. That has been given to us as a gift through the waters of our baptism. We belong to him. We have been saved. Heaven is secure. I remember uh, one day I was uh, on the radio, actually, on a little pastor's roundtable panel, and I was there with a, a priest, and, um, and he was saying that nobody can know for sure whether they're going to be saved. And I was like, I, I don't agree with that. I don't think the Bible says that. The Bible talks about us as those who have been saved. It's a done deal in our lives. But interestingly enough, the second word, even though it's very similar, has a little twist of meaning, the second word is the Bible also describes us as those who are in the process of being saved. So which is it? Are you a forgiven child of God who is already saved, that's already done in your life, or are you someone in whom God is continuing to work and you are in the process of being saved? Well, the good Lutheran answer to that question is yes, right? It's both. Those are both true in our lives. We are at the same time fully forgiven, heaven is secure, but also at the same time we know that we are gradually, daily, working to be more and more like Jesus. That's why we could read a verse like we looked at last week where Paul says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, right? For it is God that is working in you. Well, so let's take a look at this story together. And let's take a look at what this, this conversation with Peter and Jesus. Now, first of all, we're in John chapter 21. Remember that John wrote this gospel. So John is telling us this story of a conversation that he saw happen between Peter and Jesus. John's gospel, by the way, we believe was the last of the four gospels to be written. So it's written many, many years later as John is an older man looking back and recounting some of the stories that he remembers from being with Jesus. And at the beginning of chapter 21, it sets the scene a little bit for us. It, it tells us that Jesus had revealed himself. So this is after his resurrection. He's revealed himself to the disciples while they were there in Jerusalem. But now, some of the disciples were told, seven of them are up near the Sea of Galilee. They've gone back home. And Jesus has not yet appeared to them since they've been in Galilee. Uh, it says that, that this group of disciples, it was Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, which was James and John, and by the way, two other guys. I'd really hate to be one of the two other guys, you know, and be like, someday in heaven, yeah, remember that thing, John? I was one of the two other guys, you know, and then, you know, but anyway. So, uh, so there's these seven disciples, and they're waiting for Jesus, and they don't know what to do. And so Peter finally says, well, I know what we'll do. Let, let's go fishing. And so they decide to go out fishing, but we're told that when they go out fishing, they've been fishing all night, and notice what it says at the end of verse 3, uh, they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. That's, by the way, what normally happens to me when I go fishing. I catch nothing, right? So it says, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So maybe they were too far away to recognize him, maybe it was kind of misty in the morning and they couldn't quite out make out who it was. But Jesus calls out to them, he says... Hey, you guys got any fish? And they say, no. He says, how about throwing your nets on the other side of the boat? 
And at this point, the disciples had to start thinking, well, well, wait a minute, right? Because remember, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, when he first calls Peter and James and John, they were fishing. They hadn't caught anything. Jesus uses one of their boats to teach for a little while, and then he says, hey, let's go out in the deep water and fish. And they're like, really? There's no fish out there. But they do it, and they catch this miraculous catch of fish. So they throw the nets on the other side, and sure enough, the nets are full of fish again. And, and I love this. Take a look at... Uh, at uh, um, verse, let's see, where is it? Um, uh, how am I missing it? Verse 7, he says, uh, So uh, that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, look at this, he put on his outer garment, for he had stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. That just sounds so much like Peter, doesn't it? You know, He's, it's not like, okay, let's get in there quick. Let's row the boat in there so I can see Jesus. He's just like, give me my cloak. I'm not waiting for you guys. And he throws himself into the sea, and he goes to see Jesus. So, so what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus has a fire going on the shore, and he takes some of the fish, and he basically cooks some breakfast. I mean, think about that. Jesus, is, he died on a cross for their sins. He, he's risen from the dead, conquering sin and death. He now is, you know... This glorious son of God who has conquered everything for us, and he now becomes their short-order breakfast cook, you know? He makes them breakfast. And it's while they're sitting around the fire, after this breakfast, that he has this little exchange with Peter, where he says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? And, and notice he asks him that question three times. And each time, Peter gets a little more confused, maybe even a little more agitated. In fact, we're told by the last time, it says that Peter was like, he's like upset, he's grieved, my translation says, because Jesus has asked him a third time. He's like, Jesus, you know everything. You know that I love you. And so Jesus tells him each time, feed my sheep, and then he finally says to him, and look at verse 18, he says, truly I say to you that when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Kind of weird words. But then John, remember, again, writing many years later, looking back, explains what those words were. He now understands what Jesus meant. He says, this he said to show what kind of death he was to die to glorify God. We know from church history that Peter eventually was um, imprisoned for sharing the gospel and eventually was crucified. And the church tradition tells us that he told his captors that he did not want to be crucified the same way Jesus was crucified. He didn't feel he was worthy of that. And so he actually asked to be crucified upside down. So he wasn't crucified the way Jesus was. And John tells us that's what Jesus was talking about. He was warning Peter that if he was going to follow him, that's where this was going to end. But then look at Jesus does end this whole thing with those words again. Verse 19, after saying this, he said to him, says to Peter, follow me. So what's going on in this conversation with Jesus? Why, why does he ask Peter this question three times? Well, if you've been around churches very long and you've heard any sermons on this topic, uh, some pastor along the way might have pointed out to you that in this little exchange in the English, it's a little hard to see, but in the original language, Jesus and Peter are using two different words for love. Have you ever heard that before? It's, uh, this might help you unpack that a little bit. Um, one word in the Greek for love is this word agape. You've probably heard that before. It, it means unconditional love. It's the, it's the highest form of love, if you will. 
And, and the second word for love uh, that's used here is the word phileo, which is where we get the name Philadelphia, which is the city of brotherly love. So maybe not quite as high a standard of love as the other word. And when you look at it, when you understand it, what Jesus says, Peter, do you love me, the highest form of love? And Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you, the not so high form of love. And Jesus says again, do you love me, the highest form of love? And Peter comes back, yes, Lord, I love you, the brotherly love kind of word. But then here's the weird part. The third time, Jesus goes, okay, I'll settle for that. And he asks him, do you love me, the brotherly kind of love? And Peter says, yes, but he's grieved. So, so what's going on here? Well, uh, some theologians believe that what's happening here is Jesus is challenging Peter to a higher form of love, and Peter is saying, I don't know if I can do that. I, I don't know if I can love people unconditionally. I don't know if, if I can even love you, Lord, unconditionally or not. And finally, Jesus is saying to him, look, even if you can't do it perfectly, what you can do, I can, I can use. That's one of the theories that you hear. And, and maybe that's what's going on. But, but i got to be honest with you, I have my doubts. I have my doubts for a couple of reasons. First of all, while John records this conversation in Greek, it was probably spoken in Aramaic, which has different words for love. So I, we, we don't really know whether even John is, you know, how John was making the decision to translate it there. Here's, here's the other reason I'm a little skeptical, because we often use synonyms, and we really, even though they may be a little different, we mean the same thing. Let me give you an example. Let's say you walked up to me right after the service, and we started talking. I said, man, and they, I'm hungry. And they said, really, you're hungry? And I said, yeah, I'm famished. Really, you're famished? Yeah, well, I'm starving. Now, now, famished and starving are a little different, right? They have a little different meaning to them, but I didn't really mean anything different by them. I was just using different words for the sake of interest. And, and it's very possible that that's all that's really going on here. But, but here's the interesting thing. It really doesn't matter. Because, because the point that some theologians try to make with these words actually, I think, is made even better if you look at the context of this story. Let's go back a few weeks. Jesus is about to be arrested that very night. Later on that night, he's going to get arrested, he's going to get beaten, he's going to get put on trial, he's going to get crucified. And he's with the disciples, and he says to them, all of you guys tonight are going to betray me. And you remember what Peter says? Look at Matthew 26. Peter says to Jesus, though they all fall away because of you. I bet the other disciples felt really good about him saying that right in that moment, right? He points to the other disciples and he says, even if they all fall away because of you, Peter says, I'm not going to fall away. I will never fall away. John tells us an additional detail. Peter literally said to Jesus, I'm willing to die for you, Jesus. And Jesus looks at Peter. He says, you know what? Before the alarm clock goes off tomorrow morning, even if you didn't set it an hour ahead or back like you were supposed to, he says, but, but before the, the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you are going to deny me, Peter, three times. And that's exactly what happened. Do you remember? In, uh, in John's gospel, a few chapters before this one that we're studying this morning in chapter 18, we're told this. Jesus is in being put on trial right now, and, and Peter's out in the courtyard, and it says, The servant girl said to Peter, Aren't you one of this man's followers? And he said, I am not. And now notice, John gives us a little detail, which I'm convinced John gave us because he knew he was going to tell the story that we're looking at this morning. 
He says, it was cold, so the servants and guards had built a fire and were standing around it warming themselves. Peter also was standing with them warming himself. So John sets the scene for us. Peter is there gathered around a fire, and not once, but we're told three times, two more times, somebody points to Peter while he's standing around that fire, says, you're one of Jesus' followers, and he denies it. He says, no, I'm not. Never heard of the guy. Don't know what you're talking about. Now, isn't it interesting that in our story this morning, Peter's also sitting around a fire. And Jesus looks at him three times and says, do you love me? You see, I, I think what, what Jesus was trying to do here by asking Peter three times was not some sort of variance on the word love. Jesus was asking Peter three times, do you love me? Because he wanted Peter to know that he was connecting this moment to that moment just a few weeks before. We might expect, this is the conversation I would expect, okay? If I was Jesus and Peter was one of my disciples and I just trained him for three years to be this disciple maker and now he denies me three times, a few weeks later, this would be my conversation with Peter. Hey, Peter, I know that you said you loved me, but you denied me a few weeks ago, so you're going back to the bench, buddy. John's going to be in charge, not you, and uh, we're going to give you three more years to kind of work this out and prove yourself to me again before I let you take the lead. That's not what Jesus does, is it? Jesus looks at Peter and he says to him, three times do you love me? And by the end, Peter's getting frustrated, and I think the reason Peter's frustrated is because he knows exactly what Jesus is talking about. I denied you three times, so you're asking me three times. What Jesus is really saying to Peter is, I'm not through with you yet. I haven't given up on you yet. Yeah, you denied me, and I knew you were going to. But I've still got work for you to do. I need you to feed my sheep. Folks, I think there are four lessons that we can learn from this story this morning for us. And the first lesson is this. If we love Jesus, we don't have a choice. We need to disciple other people. Again, it can be so easy to focus on our own personal spiritual growth. I mean, first of all, it can be so easy to not focus on any kind of spiritual growth, right? You just kind of sit in the pew week after week, and you get your little enthusiastic fix, and you, know, you get a little inspiration, you get your forgiveness of sins, and then you go about your daily life. But Jesus says, no, I want you to follow me. I want you to live your life like me. But once we do that, once we start focusing on our own personal spiritual growth, it, became, it can become so easy to be... You know, there's only one person whose growth I'm worried about, me. But Jesus says, if we love him, we have a job to do, and that's to feed his sheep. In other words, there are other people that need us to help them grow more like Jesus. That it's not just about my personal spiritual growth. It's about me helping others grow in their faith as well. That's what the life of a follower of Jesus is all about. And, and in fact, I believe that's why Jesus ends this whole conversation with Peter with those words again, follow me. Discipling others is literally how we follow Jesus. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but if you have a chance to sit down with someone around God's word and help them understand something that you've, that, that you've understood, but now you're helping them understand it, guess what? You come to understand it better. As you help others grow, you grow too. And in fact, being a follower of Jesus means that we're going to live our lives investing in the lives of others. That's what it means to follow him. Here's the, the third lesson I think we can learn from this story. It's not going to be easy, right? 
Jesus, isn't it interesting that Jesus uses feed my lambs or tend my sheep, uh, he says to, to Peter. He, he uses sheep as the example. Um, he could have used any, anything else. He could have used lots of other opportunities or he could have just been playing with them and said, I need you to, to love other people for me. But he says, feed my sheep. Sheep are dumb animals. And they take a lot of work. You talk to anybody who raises sheep or deals with sheep, they'll tell you, sheep are hard to take care of. They, they don't, I mean, it's, it's a mess sometimes. And, uh, and, and so Jesus is warning us with that analogy that, that it's not always going to be easy. When you get involved in the spiritual growth of other people around you, it gets messy. It's hard. In fact, it's so hard that Jesus warned Peter, it's going to kill you. Literally, he, Jesus challenges us to be willing to give up everything, even our own life, for the sake of his mission. It's a pretty big challenge, isn't it? And that's why the, the fourth lesson, I think, is maybe the most important of all. When we fail, and we will fail, Jesus forgives us, and he gives us a new chance. I, I, I want to point out just a couple more little details in the story. Notice how when, when Jesus first talks to Peter there around the fire, he says to him these words. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, first of all, what's missing? He doesn't call him Peter. Who first, how did he get the name Peter? Jesus gave it to him when he first called him, remember? He, uh, Andrew says to Peter, hey, I think I found the Messiah. He brings him to Jesus. Jesus says, hey, Peter, you're going to follow me? I'm going I'm to call you Peter. I'm not going to call you Simon. I'm going to call you Peter. And in fact, that means rock. And later on, Jesus says, on this rock, on your confession of faith, I'm going to build my church. But now, maybe for the first time in three years, he looks at Peter and he doesn't call him Peter. He calls him by his original name, Simon. I think Jesus is saying, do you really want to be the person that I've called you to be? But then, the other part of this, this is really interesting. He says, do you love me more than these? Pointing to the other disciples around the fire. Remember what that's referencing? When, when Peter stood there and said, even if all of these betray you, I'm not going to betray you. And Jesus is like, okay, well, do you love me more than these? Again, I think it's so clear. He's reminding Peter about the fact that Peter failed miserably to keep his promise to be there for Jesus but Jesus wants Peter to know, I haven't given up on you. And folks, the good news is he doesn't give up on us either. Even if again and again and again we fail to live our lives the way he's called us to. Even if again and again and again we fail, to, we, we miss opportunities to be at work in the lives of other people around us. To share his love, to feed his sheep the way he calls us. Even if we failed miserably, he never says, okay, that's enough. I'll find somebody else. He gives us a fresh start every day to follow him. So here at Trinity, here's what we talk about. It's not only important that you get in a small group where you can grow to be more like Jesus. It's important that you recognize that you have a role more than just being a group member, that eventually God calls all of us to lead at least one other person and help them grow more like Jesus too to feed Jesus' sheep. I think uh, a lot of you guys know I used to be a school teacher, and uh, one of my jobs every year at the one school I taught at was to the Outdoor Education Week. 
So that meant even though I taught seventh and eighth grade, I took the fifth graders for a week out to this place called Wall Camp. Now the school I taught at was in the city of Chicago, actually in unincorporated uh, Norwood Park there, right by the city of Chicago. And so this is a bunch of city kids. And I would take them out in the country for a week. So one of the things we would do was always late February, there was a sheep farm nearby there, and the, the lambs were always being born that week we were there. So we would take the kids over, and they would get to see a lamb born for the first time. Many of them was the first time they had seen anything born. And, uh, and it, was, it was pretty amazing, you know? And uh, so I'll never forget the one year we were there, and this little lamb is born. And obviously there's something not right, because the shepherd realizes the lamb isn't breathing. And so, first of all, he lifts it up and he starts like, like under its belly, kind of doing this under its belly to try to see if he can, he can get it to start breathing. And, and it, it's not working. And, and, and so he thinks, well, maybe there's something blocking its airway. So he opens its mouth and he's kind of digging a little bit to see if there's something that he can do to get it breathing. And it's still not breathing. So he finally takes it by its rear legs and he starts swinging it around in the air like this, trying to use like centripetal force to get something, if there's something in its airway, out. And it still doesn't work. So this farmer actually takes this thing's head, takes it up to his mouth, and he starts like sucking and spitting stuff out of its throat. And finally it started breathing. Now what do you think my fifth graders were doing then? <laughs> They're going, ow! And then... The, the shepherd, when he gets done and the lamb's okay, he realizes the lamb's going to be okay, he comes walking over to talk to the kids, and he's still got stuff like dripping off his chin. I'll never forget this. And he walks up to the kids, and they're all like, and one of the kids goes, why did you do that? And he goes, because that little lamb means a lot to me. Now, he meant financially, right? He told me later it was worth like 300 bucks, and this was back in the you know, the, the 80s, so a lot of money. But I want you to think about something. What do we sing in that song, I am Jesus' little lamb? You mean a lot to Jesus. Think about what he was willing to do to save you, to save your life. He was willing to go to the cross for you. And now Jesus looks at you and me and he says, there's other little lambs, and I need you to feed them for me. He cares about the other people in your life just as much as he cares about you. And he invites us to be part of his work of saving them, of loving them, of helping them follow him. I pray that we would always do that. In Jesus' name, amen.